Father Chairman, my dear brethren and sisters, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as you entered the hall this evening, I think you were given another sheet with a few brief notes upon it. Now, our purpose in giving these notes out is twofold, really. One is that we feel that it would be profitable for you to use the few minutes before the class starts to engage in a bit of mental preparation for the matter that we are to consider. That is why we, we briefly outline upon one sheet of paper the subject matter for each evening. And we feel that if you occupy that time in reading through these things, it will give you a bit of mental preparation for the subject matter of the evening's class. Secondly, you will find that we try in these sheets to just give some very concise points which can give the key to the understanding of various sections of Scripture. For instance, upon the psalm of Zechariah, you will find that if you have the last three sheets that we gave out, you will find that you have a brief outline of that psalm and a few points which we believe will give the key to the understanding of that psalm. So we suggest that not only do you read these notes before the class commences, but you put them in your folder and keep them as a permanent record of the things we are considering. And as we have pointed out before, they are very brief notes, they are not intended in any way to be exhaustive, and therefore we encourage you to make notes of your own to fill in the details of those things that you might wish to record. Now as our brother Bruce pointed out, at our last class we considered the last few verses of Luke chapter 1. We considered the psalm of Zechariah that he uttered upon the naming of his son. At verse 80, as we, we have seen from the resume, it is a verse which spans about, probably about 27 years of the life of John. And it outlines the manner and the characteristics of his life the way he grew and developed in the things of God. Now as we trace the record of the, uh, the birth and life of the Lord Jesus Christ through in chronological sequence, it is necessary here that we leave the Gospel of Luke. For, Luke, for in Matthew we find certain facts revealed to us omitted in Luke. We have seen how Mary stayed in the house of Zachariah and Elizabeth for about three months. We're not told exactly at what point of time she left. Some believe she would have left before the birth of John. It was certainly very close to the birth of John. Personally, we prefer to believe that she waited until John was born. She probably heard Zachariah's prayer and then she returned to Nazareth. And so at the end of Luke chapter 1, or at the end of verse 79, we, we come to the, to the point where we, we have to go to Matthew chapter 1. And as we suggested at an earlier class, it's an, a good idea to put an arrow between, uh, at the end of verse 79 and make a note of Matthew verses, chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. And then as we read through that sequence, that indicates to us that at that point there are details given to us in the book of Matthew which are omitted in the book of Luke. And so we turn to the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And at verse 18 we're introduced to further, further events that took place prior to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18 where it reads, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. And so we're introduced to circumstances that led up to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. When, as his mother Mary was his spouse to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Now the word espoused there is in other places rendered betrayed. And so the, with the, our attention is drawn to the fact that Joseph and Mary were betrothed. Now due to the fact that sometimes in this day and age we don't quite understand the significance of betrothal and this as it was in ancient times, we have on the sheet given out 
made a few points which show us the nature of the children. Now the comments we have there are based upon the, upon the statements of Edersheim in his book um, Sketches of Jewish Social Life in the Days of Christ. But he's not, they're not quoted from him because we abbreviated them and put in our, in our own words to condense them down. But based upon his statements, we see that betrothal in those days was a part of the marriage contract. Being the time when the vows were made. The vows were made at the time of the betrothal and not at the time of the marriage. It consisted of a formal agreement, usually drawn up by the authorities, and agreed to before witnesses. And the matter of the agreement would involve the dowry that was to be paid, all mutual obligations and all other points in which the parties had agreed. Once betrothed, they were considered for all legal purposes as husband and wife. The man became heir to all the bride's property, etc. Edersheim even points out that in cases where it might have been particularly drawn up in the agreement that the bride was to, to um, uh, um, keep her own property, in the case of her death, the husband, the one to whom she was betrothed, became the heir of her property. And so the man became heir of all the bride's property. And any breach of faithfulness was considered as adulterer. And if for any set of circumstances the union had to be dissolved, it could only be done so by going through formal divorce proceedings. It had to be done before witnesses, just as the contract was drawn up before witnesses. So that was the nature of a betrothal in the days of Joseph and Mary. And Joseph and Mary had entered into such a contract as that. Now we state those points because we feel they are interesting in relation to our own relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in the second epistle to the Corinthians, at chapter 11, the Apostle Paul points out that we have been brought into this very same relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. 2nd of Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. The Apostle says, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. He said, But I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. You see, just as when two people entered into a betrothal contract, they, they, the four witnesses, they entered into an agreement which is usually drawn up by the authorities. So the ecclesia at Corinth, through the Apostle Paul as an appointed authority, had been brought into an agreement with the Lord Jesus Christ. The basis of that agreement, of course, was the Gospel message and the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now they entered into that agreement before witnesses, just as our baptism is conducted before witnesses. But before witnesses we confess that we endeavour to put the old man to death and to walk in newness of life and so forth. You see, our property, upon coming into this relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, becomes his. Just as in ancient times the bride's property became the possession of the husband. So our property becomes the possession of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, he, and we are bound to use that, use everything that we have in his service as best we are able. You see, any unfaithfulness in a person who had entered into such a contract was considered as adultery. You know, we know from the uh, epistle of James and so forth. But if we have friendship with the world, then we are adulterers. Friendship with the world is adultery. You know, and just as adultery in a, a betrothed person would lead to divorce and to the um, breaking of that, that contract, so those who commit adultery with the world will be rejected by the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes. And so you see there's lessons there that 
that are deserving of God as it's thought when we consider the relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. Going back then to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18, we read, When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, they've entered into this contract that was to bind them together. He says, before they came together. Now that word, came together, is a word that, well it means just that really, coming together. It can be used in the sense of two people accompanying one another. But we find the Apostle Paul uses it in the first of Corinthians chapter 7 and he uses it to describe the marriage state. In first of Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 5. <coughs> we read, Defraud ye not one another, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency and so there he uses this coming together again for the restoration of the married state and this is the way that it's used here in this verse in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18 and this verse shows us as we have made a comment on the sheet there that despite the binding nature of the contract there was still a distinction between betrothal and marriage. Despite the fact that for legal purposes they were considered husband and wife, there was still a definite distinction made between betrothal and marriage. And the marriage would take place at a later appointed time. And the union was not consummated until the marriage took place. Now that was the position that Joseph and Mary were in. They were betrothed but they were not married. They were spoken of in this verse as husband and wife because the betrothal contract really made them husband and wife although they were not husband and wife in the literal physical sense. And so that was the condition that they were in. Betrothed but not actually married. You know that's a, that's a set of circumstances today that the world that we live in mocks at. The world we live in mocks at such a relationship at that. But you know, when Yahweh's eyes ran to and fro throughout the land of Judah to select a woman to be the mother of his son and to select a man to be the guardian of his son, those are the ones he found. He picked people of moral standing and moral stature and he picked Joseph and Mary, these two people who, were, who had entered into this relationship but were not actually married at the time. You see, then in the end of verse 18 of Luke chapter 1 we read, she was found with child. And notice here the great difference between Luke's account of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ and Matthew's account. In Luke, we're given all the details of how Gabriel visited Mary, revealed to her that she was to be the mother of the Messiah. We read of how Mary went down to, to the house of, of um, Zechariah and Elizabeth and spent three months there. How different all that is to the account we have here in Matthew. Matthew merely says she was found with child. Because if you actually pointed out of the previous class, it is Luke that gives us Mary's account of the circumstances that led up to the birth of the Lord but it is Matthew that gives us Joseph's account of the events that led up to the birth of the Lord. And as far as Joseph was concerned, he knew nothing about the visit of Gabriel. He knew nothing about the um, um, things that had happened down in, in, in the hill country of Judea. As far as he was concerned, suddenly and unexpectedly, he found Mary with child. And you know, that discovery was something that plunged both Joseph and Mary into times of severe trial. Times of very severe trial, we believe. You know, let us try to look at the picture from the viewpoint of each, one at a time. First of all, let's take Mary. Now, the events of the past three months, she'd been down in the hill country of Judea, in the house of Elizabeth and Zachariah. I believe that 
They must have been three glorious months for, for Mary. I believe Brother Robert Roberts captured something of the atmosphere that must have existed in that house. In page, in Nazareth Revisited, in page 51, he writes at the end of the first paragraph, uh, he says, It was this that brought Mary in haste from Nazareth to the hill country in the neighbourhood of Hebron. And it was this that led her to stay much longer time than ordinary circumstances would have rejected. It would naturally be the theme of much interested communication between the two. He's speaking, of course, of the birth of the two sons. It would have been uh, the theme of much interested communication between the two as they busily plied the needle together in the preparations inseparable from the prospect before them and the time would go swiftly by. Now as we contemplate those words of Brother Robert Roberts, I believe he does capture the atmosphere that must have existed in that house. Are these two women prepared for the birth of their sons? Those of them knowing that they were no ordinary sons, but they were sons out of a very special place in the purpose of God. And as he says, as they busily plied the needle together, making preparations for those children, for those babes, preparing the clothes and, and, and all the other necessary things. And as he says, the, the, as they were engaged in that work, those two boys would have been the theme of much interesting communication between the two. It would have been a very exciting time in that house in the hill country of Judea. You know, it's always an exciting time in a home when a new child is, to be, is expected to be born. But these were no ordinary children that were to be born. They were no ordinary circumstances that were bringing them into existence. And we can well imagine the discussions that would have taken place in that house as preparations were made for these two children. And, there, and those three months must have lifted Mary right out of this world. Must have lifted her right out of this world as she was built up in spiritual things. And as she leaves the hill country of Judea, as she travels back northward up to Nazareth, and it would be almost as if spiritually speaking she was riding on a cloud as she went back to Nazareth. But she arrives back at Nazareth, allowing for travelling time both ways, it's probably almost four months now since the angel Gabriel first visited her. It's probably becoming quite obvious for all to see that she's this child. She's been away for three to four months. And now she arrives back in this condition. We can imagine the gossip of the neighbours. We can imagine the sort of discussions that took place in Nazareth as the neighbours saw this young woman return in the condition that she was in, it would have probably been all very hurtful to Mary, probably a most upsetting set of circumstances. But the gossip of the neighbours was probably a minor thing. You see, as she made that journey back to Nazareth, she would have realised now she was to be the mother of God's own son. She would have realised now that more than ever before she was going to need Joseph. She was going to be utterly dependent on Joseph to provide for her, to provide a home, to help her and her sister in that tremendous work that had been laid upon her shoulders. And now she arrives back in Nazareth and she finds that Joseph is mindful to put her away. You know, it had been times of very severe trial for Mary. It would have been a great crisis in her life, I believe, at that time as he came back to Nazareth in his atmosphere. You see, let me look at the situation from Joseph's point of view. His betrothed wife has she's shot off down south in haste. She's been away for three to four months, but now he's back. And look at the condition that she's in. He finds he's with child. We can imagine he'd have been absolutely shocked and stunned as he came to find the condition of this young woman that he'd come to love and to respect. The probably the last thing in the world he ever expected to happen to find her in this situation. Then he starts to think about the events of the last three or four months. It would occur to him that Mary perhaps had been behaving rather strangely. 
He had rushed off in haste down into the hill country of Judea. He stayed there a much longer time than, than one would expect. And now he's back in this condition. And he's t- telling him a story of a visit, visit from an angel and holy, the Holy Spirit and so forth. Was his story true? Or was it just a cover up? How was he to know? How was he to put it to the test? The only real evidence that he had was that he was with child. What was he to do in these circumstances? Well, the law gave uh, stipulated things that were, were to be done for people that got themselves into these situations. Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 23 is an example. Deuteronomy 22 and verse 23. If a damsel that is a virgin be betrothed unto an husband, and a man find her in the city and lie with her, then they shall bring them both out unto the gate of that city, and he shall stone them with stones that they die. The damsel will be just decried not being in the city and so on and so forth. Now that was to be the faith of a betrothed damsel that was unfaithful to her husband and committed adultery. She was to be stoned to death. That was the describing of the law in such a case. What was Joseph to do in this set of circumstances? All the evidence that he had before him suggested that Mary had acted in such a way. Dina believed it was something that plunged Joseph into a great amount of trial. He probably found it, found it very hard to believe in himself that Mary would do such a thing as this. Was he to believe her story or wasn't it? It sounded so fantastic. Where could he find truth that it was true? He could find none. We believe that Joseph was deeply moved and concerned by these things. You know, in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 1, we read, but while he thought on these things, while he thought on these things, you know, concerning that word thought there, Bullinger says this, Bullinger says the word means to have in one's emotions, to revolve in one's mind, to think upon. And I believe it implies to us that Joseph was deeply affected by the circumstances into which he'd been plunged. Suddenly and unexpectedly, he was put into this time of severe trial. And what was he to do? <coughs> you know, it's under these circumstances that we introduced to Joseph, the man who was to be the guardian of the Lord. But I believe we see the way he acts and responds, it revealed him as a very level-headed man. You see, he, he didn't fly off the handle and do something rash and illogical under the circumstances. He thought upon these things. He considered them deeply. And we see in the decision that he came to, he, he displayed a rare balance of quality. You know, under circumstances like that, it's very easy to become overbalanced one way or the other. It's very easy to become so zealous for upholding the, 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 the principles of the truth that we've become completely unconcerned about the feelings of others concerned. It's easy to become like that. And it's just as easy to go the other way. To become so over-concerned about another's feelings that we forget all about what the principles of the truth demand. It's easy to fall into either of those two extremes. But we find Joseph displayed a very rare balance of quality. You see, in verse 19 we read, Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away civilly. You see, Joseph was a just man, and in no way was he going to condone what was wrong. He was concerned about doing what was right in the eyes of Yahweh. And therefore in no way was he going to condone what was wrong. But we see him move with feeling and compassion for what he thought was his erring wife. He wasn't going to publish the matter abroad of what she'd done. He was going to do it privately. 
And apparently, although a, a, a betrothal contract could only be uh, dissolved by going through formal proceedings, the normal way would be to come to before the authorities and the thing would be published abroad. But it could be done, provided it was done before two witnesses, it could be done quietly and secretly. Joseph chose to do it that way. He had weighed the matter up in his mind. And he decided that he was going to uphold what was wrong. But he was going to show compassion and mercy to men. He was going to spare her as much as he could. And he shows a very rare balance of qualities in that. But you see, before he went as far as actually putting it into motion, he was stopped. I believe that doubtless, both Joseph and Mary made this a matter of very earnest prayer. And you see, the answer to that prayer was given. And an angel was sent to reveal unto Joseph the true circumstances. It would doubtless have been a time of very severe trial for both Mary and Joseph. Why did Yahweh allow it to happen? It's interesting, brethren and sisters, sometimes to look at the way that Yahweh deals with people and to see the way he works with them. You know, Yahweh could have prevented all that trouble. He could have prevented all that anxiety if he'd merely revealed to Joseph at the same time as the angel Gabriel went to Mary, if he'd revealed to Joseph what was happening, it would have saved all that trial uh, 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 and everything that went with it. But Yahweh didn't do it that way. I believe he didn't do it that way for two reasons. One reason, I believe, was that he wanted to draw Joseph and Mary close to himself. You see, they're both in a set of circumstances. She takes the position of Mary. She's just got to convince Joseph. But in actual fact, she was with child by the Holy Spirit. That was the big problem that Mary had. She'd got to convince Joseph that she was restored by the Holy Spirit. But how did the help that she convince him? How could she go and prove to that man that, 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 that indeed it, he was, that the child was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit? There was no way in the world she could do it. There was only one who could do it, and that was Yahweh himself. And you see, you believe in this crisis, Mary would have been very drawn very close to Yahweh. She would have to take the matter to Yahweh in prayer, but Yahweh might intervene and reveal to Joseph the two circumstances. You think Joseph's problem is, how is he going to know whether Mary's child is by the Holy Spirit or not? Was she telling him the truth? Was she just trying to cover up what she's done? How could Joseph find out? There's no way in the world he could find out apart from taking the matter to Yahweh and seeking guidance. We can see how this set of circumstances would have drawn those two close under Yahweh. They'd have had to come and throw themselves and pour out their hearts to Yahweh that Yahweh might help them and lift them out of the circumstances. And in that way, you know, Yahweh was educating them in very important lessons that they were going to have to learn if they were to be the guardians of God's own son. There was another reason, I believe, why Yahweh allowed this set of circumstances to be that. But that reason, I believe, the angel explained unto Joseph. So we leave that reason for a moment and we let the angel explain it to us also. And so we read in verse 20 that while he thought upon these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And so you see, Yahweh provides the answer to the problem. He reveals to Joseph by an angelic visitation in a dream that Mary indeed was with child by the Holy Spirit. That is the way that the angel addresses Joseph. There's no word of rebuke for what he had decided to do. 
He decided to put Mary away. He's not rebuked for that. But the angel merely gives him an explanation of her circumstances. And the angel addresses him as Joseph, thou son of David. Joseph, of course, was a son of David by natural descent. The genealogy here in Matthew establishes that. He was a son of David by natural descent. I believe he addresses him as, as the son of David for greater reasons than that. I believe he was a son of David in a spiritual sense too. He manifested a like disposition to David. He was a faithful man. But you see, I believe he addressed as a son of David for reasons other than that as well. Reasons that perhaps will become apparent as we consider the angel's words a little further. And so the angel says to him, Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. There's a verification of Mary's own time. Joseph now has the answer. He knows now that Mary's story was true. And verse 21 goes on and says, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people for them from their sins. You see, the angel now is telling Joseph that Yahweh has appointed him to be the paternal guardian of his son. It was now going to become the prerogative of Joseph to give that child a name. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. You know, what things would be conveyed to Joseph's mind by that name Jesus? In the Hebrew, it's the name Joshua. And there were two great Joshua's in the Old Testament. There was Joshua, the son of Nun, the great military leader that led Israel into their inheritance and gave them their inheritance in that land, a foreshadowing of the future work of the Messiah. And then there was Joshua, the high priest, associated with Zerubbabel in the uh, restoration after the captivity in Babylon. And that Joshua the high priest was involved in that work of restoration. He was involved in the work of building the building, rebuilding the temple of Yahweh. Again, work foreshadowing the work of the Messiah in the age to come. And these things would, would, would doubtless come uppermost in Joseph's mind as he considered this name Jesus. And he came to name, his, name that son, not his son, God's son. He came to bestow upon him the name of Jesus. Uh, when he was born. For, we are told, he shall save his people from their sins. He was to be the great redeemer, the great saviour of mankind. And now, I believe, the angel goes on and speaks more particularly to Joseph, appealing to him to accept Mary and to accept uh, that, that this son was to be God's son. Now in verse 22 we read, Now all this was done. All this was done. Not only the fact that Mary was his child by the Holy Spirit, but the fact that they'd been brought to this great crisis, that the child was four months developed before Joseph even knew anything about it. All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying Behold a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which being interpreted is God with us. Well, what's that got to do with all these circumstances that surrounded Joseph and Mary at that time? You know, the angel there is quoting from the 7th chapter of Isaiah. And in, from chapter 7 to chapter 12 of the prophecy of Isaiah, we have a section in the book of Isaiah which is the prophecy of Emmanuel. So when we go back to chapter 7, where we find those words quoted by the angel, the words actually quoted by the angel, and we read from verse 13, and he said, Hear ye now, O house of David, 
Is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will, will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now there is the prophecy of Emmanuel. The prophecy of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that that was particularly given as a sign to the house of David. Hence, the angel's address to Joseph. Joseph, thou son of David. And it's an appeal to Joseph to heed that sign that Yahweh was giving to the house of David. But you see, that sign was that a virgin would conceive and bring forth a son. You see, if when Gabriel visited Mary, he visited Joseph at the same time and revealed to him the things that were going to happen, it would have saved Mary and Joseph all that trial of later times. It could have saved Mary an awful lot of embarrassment too in Nazareth. Because you see, Joseph and Mary would have probably come together the next day and said, well look, it's been revealed to us that you're going to conceive a child of the Holy Spirit and you're going to give birth to a child. Look, people are going to see this and they're going to talk. A lot of gossip's going to go around. It'll be much easier for us if we agree to come together Maintain our virginity till after the child's born. But let's just look as if we're husband and wife. It would have saved a lot of trouble and a lot of anxiety and a lot of embarrassment. But you see, the sign of the house of David would have been destroyed. Because although the Lord would indeed have been born of a virgin, anybody and everybody would have to be excused for accepting him as the natural born son of Joseph and Mary. But you see, the circumstances had to be brought about where attention was drawn to this fact that here was a case where a virgin had conceived. But you see, the circumstances had to be brought about where attention was drawn to this fact that here was a case where a virgin had conceived. You see, and I believe attention was drawn to that fact. You know, the people of Nazareth noticed what had happened. The people of Nazareth were mindful that Mary was only married about four or five months before the child was born. They remembered that Mary had gone away and come back in the condition that he was in. You know, in the eighth chapter of the Gospel of John, some 31 or 32 years later, I believe that the Pharisees threw that in the Lord's face. And in the 8th chapter of John and verse 41, when they're discoursing with the Lord Jesus Christ about being the seed of Abraham and so forth, in verse 41, they say to the Lord, or he said to them, ye do the deeds of your father. Then said they to him, we be not born of fornication, I believe there was a note of sarcasm in that statement. They were throwing it up in the face of the Lord that he had been, so they claimed, because I believe that in their hatred for him they scrutinised his life right back to the very time of his birth and they'd learned from the people of Nazareth the circumstances of his birth. And they were throwing it in his face that he was born of fornication and they were claiming that they weren't. But you see, in actual fact, all they were doing was drawing everybody's attention to the fact that this man was a sign to the house of David. This man is the fulfilment of Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. You see, and the very circumstances of the birth of the Lord highlighted that. There are people's attention was focused on that fact that this man, in his birth, was a sign to the house of David. And so we're told in Isaiah chapter 7 there that that son was to be called Emmanuel which Matthew tells us means God with us. Now Emmanuel was God or the Lord Jesus Christ was God with us in two ways. He was God with us because he was God manifested in the flesh. 
And those that looked upon him could see the, de- the, the exhibition of the Father's character. If he could, as the Lord himself said to Philip on one occasion, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So in that sense he was God with us. But of course he was God with us in another sense as well. He's God with us as a deliverer. He's going to be God with Israel when he delivers Israel. And that of course is the substance of the Emmanuel prophecy from chapter 7 of Isaiah through to chapter 12. And in that very brief little summary there that we put upon the sheet, headed, they shall call his name Emmanuel, we've drawn attention to one or two quotations of these Emmanuel prophecies that show how the life and work of the Lord Jesus Christ was outlined in these chapters. You see, in verse chapter 7 and verse 14, he was to be born of a virgin. His name was to be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. When we come over to chapter 8, and verse 8, for instance, we read these words. And he, he's speaking here of the Assyrian that is going to come down into the land. He shall pass through Judah. He shall overflow and go over. He shall reach even to the neck. And the stretching out of his wings shall fill the breadth of thy land, O Emmanuel. That land is going to be Emmanuel's land. In other words, Emmanuel is going to be the promised seed of Abraham to which that land was promised. God promised that he would give to the seed of Abraham that land. So Emmanuel was going to be the seed of Abraham. You know, and then we find that through Emmanuel, the power of Gentile might is going to be broken. Look at verses 9 and 10 of this 8th chapter. The prophet speaking to the nations now, he says, Associate yourselves, O ye people, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Give ear, all ye far countries. Gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, and it shall come to naught. Speak the word, and it will not stand. You know, that's exactly what the nations of this world are doing at this present time. They're associating themselves and assembling themselves, but they're going to be broken in pieces. Why? The end of verse 10, For God is with us. Emmanuel. God is with us. And through the Lord Jesus Christ, the power of Gentile might is to be broken and smashed. And Israel was shown that this man who would be assigned to the house of David would deliver them from their enemies. He'd break the power of the nation and Israel would be restored. You know, we go on down to verse 14. We find that before that would happen, he would be despised and rejected by the very people he came to save. Verse 14, He shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling, and for a rock of offence to both the houses of Israel, for a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and snared and taken. You see, Emmanuel is going to be a sanctuary. Yes, but first, he was to be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence, and so he proved to be at his first advent. But despite that fact, <coughs> that many would stumble and fall upon him, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2, for instance, speaks of the way how he would be a great light. He speaks there, the people that have walked in darkness have seen a great light, and they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them has light shined. And through the Lord Jesus Christ, through Emmanuel, light did shine in the darkness in the regions of, uh, uh, of Galilee and so forth as mentioned there in verse 1. And as we go on through the ninth chapter, we read in verses 6 and 7, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David, and upon, the, and upon his kingdom to order and establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of Yahweh of armies will perform this. He's to sit upon the throne of David. See, not only is he to be the seed of Abraham to inherit that land, 
He's to be the seed of David, to inherit the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem. And as we go on into uh, chapter 11, of course, and chapter 12, we see how the Lord, how, how Emmanuel will establish peace in the earth. He will be set up as an ensign for the nation. He will gather the, out, the, the, the dispersed of Israel and Israel will be restored under his rule. And that is the section of prophecy to which the angel directed uh, Joseph's attention now as he appeals to him as a son of David to recognise the sign that Yahweh has given. A virgin who would be with child will bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And, and Joseph, as a true son of David, accepted that sign. He obeyed the angel's words and we read there in verse 24, Joseph being raised from sleep did as the angel of the, of the Lord had bidden him and took unto him his wife and he knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. Joseph was a true son of David. He recognised that sign. He saw in that child that was to be born Emmanuel, the evidence that Yahweh would be with them. It's interesting perhaps to look now at the place that Joseph played in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, from this point on, all further divine revelations were made direct to Joseph. When it was necessary for, 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 for them to flee down to Egypt, to escape Herod, it was revealed to Joseph that it should be done. When they were to come back because Herod was dead, it was revealed to Joseph. When they were to turn aside and go up to the land of Nazareth, it was revealed to Joseph. And so Joseph now, as the protector of Mary and the guardian of that child, is used by Yahweh in this way. It's interesting to note that right back in the very development of Israel as a nation, the time when Yahweh was developing the family of Jacob into the nation of Israel, he raised up a Joseph to be a saviour, to take them down into Egypt, to look after them in Egypt. When that family was too few in number to fend them for themselves and to look after themselves, Yahweh raised up Joseph to look after them. And now we see that when his own son is to be born, and as a helpless babe is going to be dependent upon others to look after him, Yahweh chooses a Joseph to protect him and to care for him in those early years. You know, when the Lord, his body, dead body, was taken down from the, the stake and to be laid in a tomb, Yahweh chose a Joseph to take that body and lay it in a virgin tomb. And it's interesting to notice the way that this name Joseph raises up in all these sets of circumstances. As we look at Joseph, we find that, that Joseph appears before us as a, um, as a quiet, honest, hard-working, God-fearing man. And that was the type of man that Yahweh chose to be the guardian of his son. And so then, we believe those verses, 18 to 25 of Matthew, give us Joseph's account of the events that led up, led up to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with our completion of the consideration of those verses, the, to follow the story through in chronological sequence, we are now brought once, once again back to the book of Luke. And chapter 2 of Luke and verse 1 continu com continues the story on in a chronological narrative. Mary and Joseph are now come together, living together. Uh, Joseph is caring for Mary and looking after her. <coughs> but they're living up in the city of Nazareth, up in the north. And it has been revealed through the prophet, the prophet Micah in chapter 5, that the, the Messiah was to be born in the city of Bethlehem. And yet Joseph and Mary are now up in the city of Nazareth. And it's very interesting to see the way in which Yahweh brought about the, the, the circumstances where his son was to be born in the city of, of Bethlehem. And in Luke chapter 2, 
and verses 1 to 3 we read and it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed and this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria and all went to be taxed every one into his own city and so we're introduced to a decree going forth from the Roman emperor and it went forth into all the world for all the habitable as the word means obviously it's referring to the extent of the Roman Empire that was as far as Caesar's decree would have any effect so a decree went forth throughout the whole of the Roman Empire demanding that every, everybody should be enrolled the word really means enrolled and not taxed the margin gives that alternate rendering but doubtless the taxing was to be associated with the enrolling. So the decree went forth from Caesar Augustus. First of all, we take a look at these verses of Luke and to see how Luke is an accurate historian. At one time it was claimed that Luke didn't know what he was talking about and that these events spoken here never really happened. But but, uh, uh, archaeological research has shown that in actual fact Luke is extremely accurate in everything that he says. It has been found, for instance, that Caesar Augustus did conduct a census at 14 year periods, about 14 years apart. And it can be traced through history that there would have been a census held about the time of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the fact that Luke says that a decree went forth from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled, can be supported by history. The second point that was used to be taken, uh, uh, critical of Luke, was in verse 2. He says, This taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. History would tell us, used to say, that Cyrenius was governor of Syria several years after the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it indeed can be verified that he was from history. But in recent times, over the last hundred years or so, uh, documents have been dug up which clearly establish the fact that Cyrenius was governor of Syria on two occasions. One a few years after the birth of the Lord and again at about the time when the Lord was born. And so you see, Luke is an accurate historian. Once again, verse 3 says, all went to be taxed, everyone to his own city. People used to question that and say, well, what what nonsense? But you know, documents have since been dug up which do show conclusively that when the Romans conducted the census of this manner, they demanded that all return to the city of their birth to be enrolled. And so Luke is historically accurate on every point. But you know, we're not so particularly concerned with that. We never doubted Luke's accuracy anyway. But you see, it's very interesting to see the way that Yahweh works. Just think of the time that would be involved in organising such a centre. You know, you couldn't send messages from one side of the empire to the other like you can today. I mean, today, you can send a message across the world instantaneously. But it couldn't be done in those days. In those days, messages would have to go forth from Rome on horseback. And the empire was a very extensive empire. It would take a considerable period of time to organise a census of this nature. It would first have to be conceived, perhaps, 12 months before it actually happened. That's only a guess. But obviously, it's got to be some considerable period of time possibly before the angel Gabriel even visited Mary, Caesar Augustus was setting the cogs in motion that were going to bring about the necessity for Joseph and Mary to be in Bethlehem at the very time when the Messiah was to be born. You see, it shows us the way in which Yahweh works. Now on these sheets, we just quoted a little paragraph from Nazareth Revisited. Nazareth Revisited, page 53. Brother Robert Roberts writes. He says, It is worthwhile pausing to consider this peculiar combination of circumstances 
Manifestly, it was a triumph of divine supervision that secured, by the operation of natural circumstances, the presence of Mary at Bethlehem at just the short particular period during which Christ should be born in the city of David, his human ancestor. But it might be seen to a certain view of the case as if it would have been more complete and natural been a more complete and natural realisation of the divine purpose on this point if Mary had been a resident of Bethlehem instead of a visitor and under no need to be regulated so as to secure attention afterwards for Jesus at the hands of the nation than one that, that threw a veil over his Bethlehem parentage associating him with Nazareth and thus preventing the easy recognition of the fulfilment in him of the prophecy that Christ should be born at Bethlehem. You see, now Brother Roberts there, first of all, directs our attention to pause and consider the, the peculiar combination of circumstances that brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem at that particular time. He says it's a triumph of divine supervision. Indeed, it illustrates that God rules in the kingdoms of men. But he also points out there at the end of that paragraph he says, look, many would ask the question, wouldn't it have been far better if Joseph and Mary had been living in Bethlehem and it would have been obvious to all now that this is the Messiah? But you see, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter and it's the honour of kings to search out a thing. Yahweh didn't make it blatantly obvious that the Messiah was born in Bethlehem. For those who sought it out, they could find out that it was true. But for those who didn't want to seek it out, they missed the point. They missed the point that that man had been born in the city of Bethlehem. And so we get a picture of events about the time when the Lord was born. There's a great census going on throughout the Roman Empire. Officials are running to and fro. People are making difficult and inconvenient journeys. Why? Because Yahweh wanted a humble carpenter from Nazareth and his wife to be in Bethlehem at that particular time. That's why it was. And there, this little babe is like the hub of a mighty wheel and all that wheel's revolving around him. And the whole empire's being turned upside down virtually so that that child can be born in the city of Bethlehem. Now why was it that Yahweh wanted him to be born in Bethlehem? Why was it so important that that child be born in Bethlehem? Well, it's important because as we've noticed in Micah chapter 5, the prophet foretold that it would be so. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from old, from everlasting. There's the prophecy that out of Bethlehem would come he who is to be the ruler of Israel, the Messiah of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it seems a rather extreme set of circumstances that Joseph and Mary have got to be taken to Bethlehem at this time merely to fulfil some utterance that the prophet made. But you see, we believe there's far deeper reasons than that why he had to be born in Bethlehem. It's far deeper reason why the prophet uttered that in the first place. You see, we go back through history, Old Testament history that is, and we look at the city of Bethlehem. We're first introduced to Bethlehem in Genesis chapter 25, verse 19, verses 19 and 20. Or verse... Uh, <coughs> we've got to go back a little to verse 18 speaking of the death of Rachel. And it came to pass as her soul was departing, for she died, but she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar upon her grave, that is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. And so here we have the death of Rachel and the birth of Benjamin associated with Bethlehem. You know, as, as, um, uh, um, as Rachel died, 
having given birth to that son, she called his name Benoni, which means the son of my sorrow. She gave birth to the son of my sorrow and she died. But, but Jacob said, he won't be called the son of my sorrow. He will be Benjamin, the son of my right hand. You know, and I believe in those things there is a prefiguring of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we see Rachel as a type of the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel in due course of time produced the Messiah. He proved to be the son of her sorrow. And she went into political death after he was born. But you see, Yahweh said, he won't be the son of my sorrow. I'm going to elevate him and make him the son of my right hand. And so you see, there was a prefiguring of the birth and the, the, the position of the Lord Jesus Christ and it was associated with Bethlehem. And Yahweh wanted his son to be born in Bethlehem to remind that nation that he was going to be the son of sorrow as far as they were concerned, that they were going to go into political death because of their rejection of him. But he would elevate him. He would be the son of the right hand. You know, the very name Bethlehem means the house of bread. And isn't it fitting that he who is to be the bread of life should be born in the house of bread? So out of the house of bread was to come forth he who is to be the bread of life? You know, the other name for Bethlehem, Ephrath, means fruit-bearing. Indeed, of course, we see that that is significant also in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we go on through history and we find Bethlehem figures again in the story of Ruth. Incidentally, after the death of Rachel, Jacob set up a pillar upon her grave. A pillar, a chunk of stone, barren and fruitless. And you know, after the political death of that nation, the land of Israel lay desolate, barren and fruitless, as a memorial of the death of that nation because of their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in the book of Ruth we have Bethlehem figures again because it was to Bethlehem that Ruth and Naomi came from the land of Moab. It was in Bethlehem that Boaz married Ruth. He redeemed Ruth and, and, and he married Ruth and, and, and from her uh, came ultimately King David. Now in the fourth chapter of the book of Ruth just to, to uh, um, summarise the thing very briefly we find that after Ruth and Naomi had come back from the land of Moab. They come back to the city of Bethlehem. Boaz had redeemed Ruth, he'd married Ruth, and a son was born unto them. And we read in, Luke cha- in Ruth chapter 4 and verse 15, or reading from verse 14, And the women said unto Naomi, Blessed be Yahweh, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, or a redeemer that his name may be famous in Israel and he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life and a nourisher of thine old age for thy daughter-in-law which loveth thee which is better than thee than seven sons hath borne him. You see, here's a set of circumstances where Ruth, called out of the land of sin and death come out of that land separated from her father's house She's come to Bethlehem. She's come to the house of bread. Boaz, the strong one in that place, has redeemed her. He's married her. He's taken her as his bride. You see, it's typical, brethren and sisters, of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Ecclesia. And in the future time when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, he will be married to his Ecclesia. He will take her as his wife, as his bride. But in that time... Israel will be restored. And just as Ruth stands as a type of the Ecclesia, Naomi stands as a type of Israel. And in verse 15 we read that he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life. A restorer of thy life. And when the Lord is in the earth again, political life will be restored to Israel. 
as he sits upon the throne of David and establishes them as the centre of a world empire. You know, in having the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ at Bethlehem, Yahweh was endeavouring to direct the attention of the people to these facts. You see, in the very circumstances of his birth, he was marking him out as a sign to the house of David. Here is Emmanuel. Here's the one that's going to be the Redeemer. You know, he takes their, take their mind back to the death of Rachel. Look, if you reject him, you will go into political death. But you see, there at Bethlehem, through Boaz, the great Redeemer was manifested and will in the future again be manifested, who will marry his bride, who will be a restorer of life to the nation of Israel. And Israel will be restored to political life again as they're established under the rulership of their great Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, in every aspect of his birth, Yahweh was endeavouring to direct the attention of that nation to the fact that this man was a fulfilment of prophecy. In every aspect of his birth, he was saying to them, this is your Redeemer. This is Emmanuel. This is the one who's going to be a restorer of life in the future time to the nation of Israel. Accept him. Joseph did accept the sign. Joseph did accept him as the Redeemer. The nation at large rejected him. They've gone into political death. But when he returns, they will be restored to life again. But may it be, brethren and sisters, that we might be part of his bride at that time.